0: by grace. We're thrilled that you're here to worship with us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to continue our journey going verse by verse through this book, and we're going to do so in chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. Let us all remember this morning that this is God's word, that it is given to us that we might hear it and receive it by faith. 2 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 9, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies, saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? When the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah and to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure." And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided, you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rojalem and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. And he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? Am I this day 80 years old? Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord the King? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the King. Why should the King repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimam. Let him go over with my Lord the King. And do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimam shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on its way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gifts? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel." Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here in this place in your name, we ask you to do the unimaginable. Speak to us. Take ink on paper and bring it to life in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, lead us not only to know what your word says, but to know you who speak. Lord, we desire this morning to hear your voice, to move in our lives. So correct us, train us, convict us, restore us. We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree. Last week, we spent a significant amount of time exploring personal shame. Yes? We stopped our study and looked solely at David's response to the victory of his side in the civil war of Israel and Judah. But David wasn't the only one who had shame in this season. One of the questions we must ask is what does post civil war look like. We must understand what happened, how they felt, how they were going to act and respond. But we also need to understand that David is now the rightful king returning to the rightful kingdom that God has given him. But he returns to a kingdom Despite the end of the war, without peace, without brotherhood, without unity, how are they as a nation and a kingdom to live so divided? So pay attention in this chapter. Look for the quarreling, listen to the bickering. Observe the divisions that are here and see what they're rooted in. Often they will be rooted in an act of favoritism or a fear of being left out of favoritism. They will see an entitlement in action, but they will also be afraid that the others are entitled to something that they themselves are not. In fact, if we were to use a contemporary issue as a guiding insight, it would be, what is the role of privilege in this society? And how do they react? Are they afraid of their own privileges? (laughs) Rarely. Aren't they often afraid of others being privileged? Yes. So as we come to the chapter, we have to come seeing the shame of a group of traitors. There was a revolt and rebellion in Israel. And some were loyal to the current king who's returning, but many were loyal to the rebel, Absalom, as he sought to take over his father's kingdom. In other words, we see in verse 9 that all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes. It's so easy for them to be tribal because it's directly tied to their ancestry. It's not always an ideological commitment. It is often a generational commitment. They still see themselves through the divisions rather than through the union they share as Yahweh's covenant people. So if all of them are arguing and quarreling and bickering throughout the land, what's the dilemma that they are bickering and quarreling about? Well, we see it in their own words We see it here in the middle of verse 9 and through 10. The king delivered us. This is going to be a history lesson. The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. That was a long time ago. And now he's fled out of the land because of Absalom's insurrection. Okay? But Absalom, and here's the key, whom we anointed over us. Yahweh had anointed a king, but they had anointed a different king. So here they're not just battling their brethren, they're also battling God. And in the defeat of their king, God and his king are perceived as returning to govern the people. They are very aware of their guilt. One commentator referred to them as guilt-ridden traitors. And I can't say it better than that. What's the dilemma? They're guilty. They're guilty of insurrection and rebellion, not just against David, not just against the kingdom of Israel, but ultimately and in final sense, They're guilty before a holy God for wanting their own way to forge their own path. None of us can relate to that. So here's the moment of dilemma for them. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? In other words, who and how are the subject of their quarreling. Who gets to go, David, and be in the triumphant entry and return to Jerusalem? Because remember, David had a pitiful self exile, right? And there were people who went with him and there were people who wanted to go with him and there were people who he begged to stay so that they could have that network of spies and information delivering and all of that. But ultimately, now that Absalom's dead, the insurrectionist king is gone, who gets to bring David back and how? In what manner? Do we just kind of slip him in and pretend nothing happened? Do we do a victory parade and force everybody to cheer? Like many dictators in bygone past? This is the quarrel. It's the quarrel in Judah. It's the quarrel in in the northern tribes of Israel. And David also has this dilemma, doesn't he? How will I return? Who should be with me when I return? And this is not about just returning geographically, right? They're way east of the Jordan right now. They're out of the land of Israel to sort out the affairs of Israel. But soon, he will geographically be relocated to his city in Jerusalem. And you'll see if you kind of understand this narrative that he comes back in stages. He kind of heads west, little by little by little, crosses the Jordan, and then meets in another location, and then eventually returns to Jerusalem. In fact, at one point here, there's a conversation taking place once he's already back. So it's one of the challenges sometimes to read in the Hebrew Bible is the setting changes without a cut scene for us like we see in movies. If you're watching a movie... The directors do a great job of being like, okay, new place, new time, flashback, flash forward, and they take us on that journey. Sometimes it happens in the middle of these historic narratives, and you have to slow down and ask yourself, whoa, 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 wait, he's in Jerusalem right now? I thought he was, he hadn't even, who's, okay, hang on. And sometimes you got to write it out, which is great. That's what I do. So what we all should do to try and understand the moment and what's happening. But here's the question, not just for the people, but for the king. How will David respond to the traitorous shame of the people who rose up against him? Because their biggest fear is the uncertainty surrounding that question. So let me give you a visual. Is David going to return with an axe in his hand to strike down all those who opposed him? That's the playbook for a lot of human history. Or is David going to return with a scepter to rule, not an axe to chop down? Does David want a unified Israel? Yes. Does David punish and execute all who dared oppose him? No. In fact, he shows temperance, which is a long-lost political gift, right? The idea of showing mercy to others on a corporate scale. We're going to see some examples of this, but at a fundamental level, Everybody is nervous. Is David going to return with an axe or a scepter? And don't forget, there will be those who were in his camp while he was exiled who will want him to return with an axe. We were loyal. They weren't. They forfeit all future goodness. That bloodthirst of vengeance easily courses through our veins. So what can cool our inward temperature? It's not patience that David will show. It will be undeserved mercy. That's the only thing that can clean their shame away. So watch for it, look for it, observe it. So David, choosing to return with scepter and not axe, he says, how am I going to do this? So we don't really see the internal dynamics or the council's discussion around these things. What we get next is that David, in the midst of the chaos and the bickering, starts by sending a letter or an edict or a message of some form through Zadok and Abiathar, the priests we've seen before, extremely loyal to David. One of the things that's worth remembering when we come to moments like this is that there's often a giant game of telephone, right? You remember this when you were kids? You would say a word to somebody and then they would pass it on, 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 or a sentence or a paragraph. And the more information involved, the less accurate it would be as it's transmitted David has to entrust one of the most important messages he will ever send through men he trusts not only to remain loyal to David in their attempt, but also in their skill of passing on information. Who better than a priest to speak for someone else? This is what priesthood is. It's mediation on some level. Whether it's God speaking through the mediator to his people or his people speaking through a mediator to God. You have to trust that they can capture the right information and disseminate it accurately and faithfully. So here's David entrusting this essential message Through Zadok and Abiathar. And here's the message. Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? Gosh, this is brilliant. David wants Judah to be united. And you're going to see some arguments that he lays out. This is absolutely pre-telemarketing skill. I'm going to say this, and if they object this way, say that. And if they object this way, say this. And he's going to counter expected arguments. In fact, nobody's better at that than the Apostle Paul, right? So then you will say, and here's my response, and then some of you might think, and then here's my response, right? If you read some of Paul's letters through the question of a questioning audience, it can be helpful. What's his appeal to Judah? This is going to happen. Join in. What do we have to do to get you to the finish line of welcoming me back as king? And you'll see the substance of his argument is very much tied to his relationship with them by birth and by history. Where does David hide when Saul seeks his life? Isn't it in the wilderness of Judah? Doesn't he trust himself to the villages of Judah Doesn't he hold camp and council in Hebron, which is ironically the place that Absalom gets anointed as king? David knows that Absalom has a stronghold among his tribesmen. So David says, I am one of you. My bone, my flesh, my bone, my flesh. We are one. You see it in verse 13. You see it echoed again in verse 14. What David is trying to do is relieve their fear that there will be no retribution, for Amasa can replace Joab as commander, and I love that this is singular, of the army. Aren't there two armies at the time when David sends this message? And David says, ultimately, I will demote my commander who won the victory and put him in a lower position than the general of the insurrectionist army who's from Judah. In fact, wasn't the chief strategist, though he wasn't trusted with the final decisions, Wasn't Ahithophel himself from Judah? Absalom crowned in Judah. Amasa made commanding general in Judah. David is more afraid of losing Judah than he is of winning Israel. Which is going to be weird because at the end of this chapter, the quarreling and the bickering are still happening. We're going to see some individual episodes that bring an end to that quarreling. But ultimately, this whole chapter is bookended by these quarreling, bickering divisions. How does David restore his kingdom and not just return to it? If you really want to go deeper into this chapter, spend some time back in 2 Samuel 16 and compare it to this chapter in 19. Because again, in 16, we saw these episodic moments, these episodes of David interacting with somebody as he's exiting Jerusalem. Well, now the reverse is coming. And the historian who's narrating this for us has him coming back in stages, just as he left in stages, but also with episodes of interpersonal interactions. This is not just politics done at a military level. This is also going to be politics done from mind to mind and heart to heart. How does David restore his kingdom? He begins with Judah, and he makes his appeal there. Because if he can't win Judah, does he have any chance of winning Israel? No, part of Absalom's appeal to Judah was that he was David's son. And in his own eyes, and only in his eyes, he saw himself as the rightful heir. So listen to the response. Was David not just brilliant but also effective? Yes. Verse 14 tells us that he so swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah that they were as one man. Is there a greater statement of unity that could be made here? All these many people speak as one voice. I think it's one of the reasons why God loves his people to sing to him. Because we demonstrate the unity of our love and affection and praise for him as we sing together as one person. So, here's the promise. If I come back and you join me, Amasa can be commander and nobody dies. I do not have an ax in my hand or in my mind. And if we think about the nature of David throughout all of this, isn't he reluctant to shed blood? He's willing to shed his own as a boy standing before Goliath. But he does not shed other people's blood, wanting to alleviate himself from any responsibility. It was his men who had to order him back from the battlefields. Do you remember? So here he is. Well, let's look at some episodes then. We see in verse 16 that Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. I know these names get lost and hard at times. So let me remind you This is the guy throwing boulders at David's head. This is the guy screaming like a madman in David's exile, curse after curse after curse. He's going to get one-on-one time with David? I don't know if this is brilliant or stupid, but that guy knows he in big trouble he 's in really big trouble, and as many men know the feeling of having acted far too hastily in a previous moment, only men know this i 'm glad I got a laugh, and not a groan. He hurries down. <laughs> he better be the first one to welcome him back because if he does anything wrong, he's the easiest guy to kill. If you read through this whole narrative, he's in the most danger. Maybe he's equal with Ahithophel, but Ahithophel's plan wasn't even followed. Shammai's throwing rocks as he's throwing curses. He's not cursing He's throwing curses. He probably used some four letter words, but they were in Hebrew, so they wouldn't be four letters. He hurries to come down. He gets there so fast, even though it's a farther journey, and joins the men of Judah to meet King David. This is what we're told at the end of 16. In 17, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. These are Saul's descendants, remember. It hasn't been that long since David took over for Saul. He is both politically wise and interpersonally terrified. Fellas, we in huge trouble. So here's my plan. We're going to run to David. We're going to swear loyalty. No, 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 not just me. You're coming and you're coming and you're coming and all y'alls is coming right? He shows up with a thousand men, hopefully in peace. But do you really think Shemai's afraid to lose some troops if it saves his own life? There are some who read what comes here as true repentance. And I would urge those ones of you to compare the words spoken that look similar to this by Saul with the actions that soon followed. This is political expediency. This is not true repentance. So he brings a thousand bodyguards, excuse me, he brings a thousand men. (laughs) Oh, and Mephibosheth, who lost his fortune to Ziba, Ziba, also from the house of Saul, is with them. Two powerful men in one of the most important insurrectionist tribes coming to see the king right away. Which, if you're coming to genuinely reconcile, is the way to do it. Delayed repentance doesn't do you any benefit. Just repent. Repent. If you got a problem with your spouse, talk about it. If you have a problem with your kids, talk about it. If you got a problem with dad, talk about it. Delaying the discussion poisons the well you drink from. So they run. But it's hard to know from the action if the heart is in it. Because they're going to die if David decides to come with an axe instead of a scepter. So they... Rush down! They join the Judeites and they cross over into the eastern. Uh, sorry, they run east towards the place where David is held, and they're there to help bring the king's household and to do his pleasure. Okay, and Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and he speaks, "Let not my lord hold me guilty." Notice how his repentance begins with him. Don't hold me guilty. Don't remember how your servant did wrong on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Those are all the right words. I was a fool. Please don't listen to what I said before. Listen to my words now. Here's a question for you. Can skepticism ever be holy? It can, right? Is all skepticism holy? No, no, no. But I think it's okay to say, let's look at the fruit of this tree and judge it against the quality of the tree that would produce it. And that doesn't happen in any single moment. Please hear me carefully. This holy skepticism should not be assuaged by one moment or five moments. The quality of the life that follows will come as a tree bearing many fruits And the church has always had imitators, true? So he falls down in front of David, and he says, For I know that your servants have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Like, kill him! I mean, he doesn't have the right to say to David, David, follow my commandment to you. But like he's screaming every impulse, top to bottom, is that guy threw boulders at you! Don't believe the falling down. Believe the throwing. Don't listen to the words he spoke now because he has no power. Listen to the words he spoke when he did have power. Everybody who loses can be conciliatory. Where's his loyalty when he had power and numbers? Uh, Kill him? Why is this a question? It should have happened before now. You should have seen him and gone, him. Him. And immediately 50 spears litter his body, right? Like, how does he even get that close to David only by David's mercy? And then David rebukes Zeruiah. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Sorry, Abishai. He rebukes Abishai by putting him in his party according to his father in Zeruiah that you should this day be as an adversary to whom? This is wild, isn't it? David's looking at the guy who says, kill him, and he's like, why are you uh, uh, on the opposing party for me? Wait, wait, who's your opposition? Who's your enemy? Who's on the wrong team here? Kill him is the wrong team? David's mercy is too great. Even if it's going to be given to the undeserving who remain undeserving. Shimei is not going to become some great loyalist to David. But David has mercy for him too. Why are we adversaries? Shall anyone, here's the question, Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Isn't that the question everybody has? Who gets the ax? Who remains under the scepter? How will David respond to this insurrection and corporate shame? It ends with the promise of life. Shemmai, who deserves to die, and everybody knows it. That's why you got like mini Peter over here blurting out, just kill him. And David says, for do I not know that I am this day king of Israel? What David is doing right here is essential for us to understand how conflict resolves. David is claiming ownership over the whole of the people. David is not going to be caught up ruling tribe by tribe by tribe. He's going to immerse himself as much as he can in seeing Israel as a united whole. And the only way he gets to do that is by owning other people's sin for them. Am I not king over the whole of Israel? The answer is, of course, uh, yeah, we just established that with like a civil war. So the king looks at Shimei, you shall not die. This is how David treats his enemies. So if we are going to apply this thought to our lives, and we're going to agree that there can be holy skepticism There isn't here holy separation. It's not, we won't believe you at all until you have completely proven it. That would be a works-based relationship. Instead, he says, come on. I'm not going to kill you for this. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. But it doesn't mean here's all the keys to the castle. Do with it whatever you want, right? It's you don't die doesn't mean he can't get banished later. He's just not going to die. And David gave the oath of a king. That's what the end of 23 says. So then we get Mephibosheth, and we remember that he had, this is the quote, neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard. So apparently he didn't clip his toenails or his beard, and he didn't wash his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that David comes back in safety. <laughs> we, we fast forward, and David is having a conversation with Mephibosheth in the kingdom. Because, of course, Saul's lame son is not mobile on his own. In fact... The story we were told back in chapter 16 was a total lie. And it was a greedy scheme by the servant who mounted a donkey for himself and went to see David instead of mounting his master on that donkey and walking with him to see David. Ziba could lie because he could tell Mephibosheth's story for him and he had no power to correct it, but what power did he have over himself? His outward appearance, no shower, no beard cut, no trim, no oil, he probably smelled pretty bad in David's presence. That kind of homeless odor takes a little while to build up and David could smell it. And this is what he says, from the day you left, Till right now I have grieved the whole time. Don't believe Ziba's words, believe the signs that I am showing you of my loyalty to you. What a contrast between he and Shimei. These are outward signs of true inward grief. In other words, what could a lame crippled man do for himself? Isn't he dependent fully on others? For transportation and and everything else, Ziba failed him. So in short, this entire conversation is boiled down to Mephibosheth was physically limited but always loyal. And so he's returned to David's house. But David's also trying to unite a kingdom. He's trying to restore all of this strife. So he doesn't take everything back from Ziba. He splits it in half. It's this weird divorce. It all was yours, and then he lied, so I gave it all to him. Now I know that was not true, but I'm not gonna take everything back because it would just continue to build the animosity, and and Ziba's loyal to Saul, which is why he was loyal to Absalom, and okay, Uh, Divorce 50-50. You get it? So Ziba gets to keep half, none of which he deserves. And Mephibosheth gets to be restored in half. But does he need anything? Does he need his lands? No, he's in the king's personal care. So he has all his needs met. Let's jump over now to the octogenarian. Not the best word. Let's talk about the 80-year-old. So we have Barzillai here, and we're told, verse 32, that he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. So you got this old rich guy who has supported David when he was in the wilderness east of the Jordan that sustained he and his household and his troops And so David wants to reward him. So Shimei's not going to get punished. Mephibosheth goes 50-50. And here you have Barzillai, the Gileadite. Is Gilead inside Israel or outside Israel? Yeah. So does this guy have any right to kind of anything? Look at the total mercy of David here. He's going to give this outsider access to the inside. He's going to take him as a foreigner and make him one of us. This is one of the ways that Israel gets healed for some seasons, is that David as king rules over those loyal to Yahweh, not himself. Barzillai had served God by serving David. So David welcomes him into the full life and vitality of that community. And this holds for us as an incredible contrast to Ahithophel. Notice and remember that Ahithophel... Realized that Absalom was going to lose the war because he's going to go by the wrong plan. And he went to his house, he put his affairs in order and hung himself. He killed himself violently, suicide. Listen to the request of Barzillai. He's like, dude, I'm old. My ears can't appreciate great singing, my tongue can't appreciate kingly food. I'm good. My request is not that you force me to come to Jerusalem, but rather that you let me go home so that I can live out however many natural days I have left in my family's homestead, near where my father and my mother are buried. I just want to go back home. If you want to show great loyalty to me, can you take my son instead of, like I'm 80 years old, will you take my son because his body still works, and his ears are good, and his mouth will enjoy all the things that you eat. Does Barzillai have any right to ask David anything? But David's mercy overflows. And Chimam shall cross the Jordan with me, he's told. And I will do, 38, verse 38, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you who's the you? Barzillai. Barzillai, you tell me, because he's your son, what does he love? What is he like? How can I do it? I'll do whatever you think is good here, but he's going to be mine. Chim Ham says, he's going to go along with this. So the king goes on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, verse 40, and all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. That seems so innocent a sentence, right? The last guy is going to get transitioned back in because we're going to stop zooming in, we're going to take the lens, we're going to zoom back out and half of Israel and pretty much all of Judah acting as one man are going to bring David across to the Jordan. The king is returning and a ton of people were there is not what it says. The king is returning and all the triumph and all the glory and Judah was there and they were there as one voice and half, of Israel was there. The quarreling, still going on, the bickering, it's right there. Favoritism, entitlement, privilege, division, yes. In fact, if you ever want to know who the best trash talkers were in ancient Israel, I know you guys stay up late at night pondering the question, who's the best trash talker? Right? Is it Michael Jordan? Is it Larry Bird? Jordan says he learned it from Bird. Judah wins. Listen, we're not the first to speak of bringing back our king. This is Israel, the northern tribes yelling at the Judaizers, the Judaites. And he says, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer. Look, at James is grinning like he just won a prize. it's beautiful how human how human and how holy are these stories these are real people and the escalation from 41 to 43 is super simple One guy says something, the next guy responds badly, and then he multiplies the bad response, and then he multiplies the bad response, and apparently Judah won. I don't know if this is a your mama joke contest, but you get the idea, right? It escalates not just in its rooted history, but in its momentary interaction. Division... Hear me, division is easy. Us versus them, it's easy. Is David caught up in us versus them? Who has more right than David to draw a line between us and them? And he won't do it. The northern tribes are accusing Judah of abusing their ancestral link to David? They used the accusation of stolen you away? The response by the Judah contingent, have we eaten at all at the king's expense? <laughs> Defensive much? Why then did you despise us? Back and back and back and back and, back and forth. How does David feel? this isn't one conversation, right? Can we be honest? This isn't one conversation being had at the edge of the Jordan. This isn't a conversation being had just as he crosses the Jordan, or as he gets to Gilead, or as he enters Jerusalem. This is the question, axe or scepter, us or them. Well, David is very happy to bring thems into the brotherhood of us. What a great image that is for us. What's the theological witness of this text? You want to know my honest answer? David's kingdom must be Yahweh's kingdom. It must be, or it would have self-destructed long before David's greater son could appear in the flesh. Anybody remembering Rome fondly here? Societies flourish and fall. And yet God preserves a people for himself through all divisions, through all the bickering with words, through the wars of swords and spears. This must be God's kingdom because it is still alive and thriving Today, because God promised to come and he came and he promises to return and he will return to a people that are his. This must be the Lord's kingdom or surely it wouldn't have survived long enough to experience the messianic moment or this morning, as people gather in his name to sing his praise, to offer their prayers. The coming of Christ breaks down dividing walls of hostility inside tribal squabbling and across the entirety of God's created globe. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and this moment and this opportunity to gather in your name. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you have been. Father, that you and you alone can restore the ills and the hurts of now inside us And in history amongst all of humankind, Father, thank you for the humanness of your word. Thank you for the silly and the severe, because we live silly and severe lives. Father, we thank you and offer praise to you that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between one tribe and another, between my divided heart, that you proclaim a victory that breaks into the now and will one day soon be consummated in a kingdom that is holy alone forever. Lord, we long for that day. Speed your return. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and all God's people agree.